0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Duke Football Coverage Podcast, brought to you as always by Bull City Coordinators. You can check us out on our website, bullcitycoordinators.com, where we are working on a four-part history of the Coach Cutcliffe era. I have to write part four, but I'm struggling to do it because it involves reliving a lot of painful and unfortunate memories. And I've already covered it extensively on the blog anyway, but I will get to it, I promise. You can also check us out on Twitter at Duke FB coverage. Getting to our next guest, he is one of the all-time great Duke quarterbacks, played in the NFL for 10 seasons with the Giants and the Cardinals. And when I was doing my research for this interview, I noticed that he played right around maybe two full seasons under center, and he really made a mark on the Duke record book. He is ninth in total passing yards, first in single game passing yards at 479. And we will talk about the game in which he set that record, I promise you. Seventh in career passing touchdowns with 42, tied for fourth in single season passing touchdowns at 20, third in single season touchdowns overall, 25 in the 91 season, eighth in total career touchdowns at 49, and ninth in total offensive yards. Dave Brown, welcome to the podcast. How are you, sir? I'm great, Ben. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I saw that you were on the Rich Eisen show around the time that Daniel Jones got drafted, and while this might be a slight step down in production quality <laughs> and national reach, I like to think of myself as the Rich Eisen show of Duke football podcast. So I hope this uh, this you fit right in here.
1: No, absolutely. It's uh, you know it's out in L.A. You know you're down in North Carolina, but uh, I'm sure the quality's the same.
0: <laughs> well, I'm actually in Roanoke, Virginia. Okay. So- Little little different. Um, But one thing that I like to do when we start the the interview is give you a chance to introduce yourself to the listening audience. Once a lot of the players leave Duke and they go to the NFL career, we kind of fall out of touch with them. So why don't you tell us what you've been doing since your NFL career ended in 2001?
1: Yeah, great. So I, I ended, uh, my last season was 2001. Um, in 2002, you sort of have to grow up and, and find a real job. And, uh, you know, I did the announcing route for about a year. I, I was a, um, did the pregame and postgame shows the Philadelphia Eagles uh, on Comcast Network. And then at the same time, realized that uh, I had to go out and get a real job as well. So I, um, I, I've, I started my career at uh, New York Life to really learn the asset management business investments. And after, you know, now 18 or 20 years of doing it. I work. Uh, I run a group within a firm called Molson Company, which is a boutique investment bank in New York, based in New York City. And uh, I lead a group um, that that basically uh, raises money for private equity funds. So, guys who buy and sell companies need capital to do that. Um, you know, my team uh, is set up to really go out and try to provide that capital uh, for those for those individuals to go buy and sell companies. So I've got three kids. I've got uh, two girls and a son. Uh, My oldest is uh, at Fairfield University. My middle daughter is at Penn State. And I have a son um, who is a junior in high school. And what has been
0: easier for you playing in the NFL and the media market or raising children?
1: Great question. Um, you know, being in New York, <laughs> you know, the media can be pretty rough. So I, I would probably say raising kids. It's a lot more certainly a lot more gratifying. Um, but uh, but, yeah, raising kids is, uh, is a lot easier. Well, you say
0: that about it being more gratifying. When I was in law school, one of my buddies was a big Giants fan. And it, we were there for the 08 season when they upset the Patriots. And I asked him, I said, Ian, are you going to stop booing Eli Manning now? <laughs> I'll boo him the first time he throws an interception. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I and mean, what, what you can't even – beating a then-undefeated team doesn't get you any break with the Giants fans. What was your experience with that like at times?
1: Yeah, listen, they um, – you know, you pay a lot of money for those seats. You have the right to, uh, to you know, offer your opinion, whether it's uh, – valid or not but certainly you know that the the, the teams that i were that i was on you know i got there in 92 um i was uh really the backup behind phil sims and jeff hosteller so i, I had a, a lot of learning to do and had two great mentors to learn from and that team was you know probably a little long in the tooth they just had won two super bowls a lot of the veterans were, were pretty you know getting older you know guys like lawrence taylor on that team phil sims you know they, they had a, a really really uh, strong team but again, they were getting they were getting old. So um, I think the fan base was really um, excited about the team they had. And then I don't think they appreciated maybe the, the build that had to take place for them to to come back to, you know, the, the, the national uh, and league prominence that they had at one time. And fortunately or unfortunately for me, I was kind of stuck in the middle of that. So uh, I'm sure there's a lot more questions around that, but that's really kind of the, the, the way that I, I sort of uh, bridged my career. Let's talk a little bit about how you
0: got into football. Tell us where you're from originally and when you started playing the sport.
1: Yeah, so I'm from Westfield, New Jersey. I uh, still live here today. Um, I, uh, the first, NF, or first uh, little league team was set up in fourth grade. My parents did not want me to play. They thought I was too young. So they drove me over for my uh, third year of soccer signups. And uh, true story, I actually locked my dad out of the car. He he got out of the car to go sign me up, and I refused to get out of the car and, and locked him out. And um, I said, I'm not going. I want to play football. So that was enough, I think, for him to uh, to say I was really interested. So I, I went out uh, the t- next week and signed up for football and was a tight end my first year, and then uh, played quarterback every year after that. Did dad get back at you for locking him out of the car? I imagine my father would have. Yeah, he became the coach, which, uh, you know, (laughs) that's always an interesting dynamic when your dad's the coach. But uh, no, my dad was a great coach, but he was he was rough on me and rough on all of us.
0: Well, I got to switch gears for just one second. We'll come back to it. Uh, But since since we're talking about fathers, I meant to say this at the beginning of the show, but I just want to give a shout out to my dad who's recovering from left knee replacement surgery, big surgery. But he uh, went through it well. He's doing fine. Um uh, so um uh, meant, meant to say that at the beginning so dad don't get too upset at me for uh forgetting to put you up at the top of the show but why don't we talk about as you developed in your career you're getting into high school and you're getting recruited and then you end up going to duke can you talk us through what your recruitment process was like and how you ended up as a blue devil
1: yeah. So I, uh, I played a little bit as a sophomore in high school, not, not much, but then my junior year, I was named a starter. Um, you know, I had a pretty good year, but we, you know, I, back then I was probably six, five, 170 pounds. And uh, my high school, actually we ran the, the freeze options. I don't know if you remember way back when, when uh, Donovan McNabb was quarterback for Syracuse, it was sort of an I formation option scheme. And you can imagine a six, 170 pound, you know, quarterback trying to run an option scheme. So we were five and four didn't have a ton of success but we uh you know we were in third down a lot because because of uh the running game wasn't as potent we ran a lot of bootlegs and i did a lot of things in the run i think i think my size and arm strength sort of attracted people to me sort of in, in my junior year uh senior year you know stayed with that same offense but but threw a little bit more but i'll be honest with you i probably averaged maybe 10 passes a game in high school um, and then, you know, there was a lot of, I started getting letters all, um, every, pretty much every day from, from uh, teams all over the country. And I narrowed it down to uh, my five official visits were Boston College, Duke, Iowa, uh, Michigan, and Maryland. Um, and it was interesting. So at the time, you know, Spurrier was the coach at Duke. There was, uh, you know, Bicknell was up at uh, Boston College. Uh, Hayden Fry was at Iowa. Uh, there were some, you know, re- really some, some high, high-powered uh, coaches out there. And one of the funny stories was I was, uh, I was playing high school basketball at the time, and I really didn't want to miss my high school basketball games to, to go to these official visits. Because what they would have you do is fly in on a Friday night, spend the whole weekend, and I would inevitably, inevitably miss one or two basketball games. Um, so I, I, I asked a lot of the coaches if they'd just come up and I could speak to them at my high school. So Spurrier came up uh, to one of my high school basketball games, and the, and the offensive coordinator for Boston College was also in the building. And we were playing a team, and it was a cross crosstown rival. And the game kind of got out of control. We were we were ahead by a lot, and late in the game, um, I was already taken out of the game. And uh, there was a there was actually was a bench-clearing brawl during the game, where fans came out of the stands, and uh, it was it was one of the ugliest scenes maybe in my high school's history. And it just so happened that Spurrier was there, and uh, and and several other coaches and. You know, in all my years at Duke and even today, Spurrier always remembers that and always, you know, laughs at sort of mean streets of Westfield, New Jersey, which is, you know, about as uh, nice a town as you can find in, in the suburbs of New Jersey. But uh, it was pretty uh, pretty remarkable uh, a day on a recruiting trip for me. So was Spurrier, was Coach Spurrier the lead guy recruiting you at Duke? Uh, there has a guy, Jim Collins, uh, who was really, who really did a great job. He, when I look back at that Duke team I was on and success we had, a lot of the, the core players that were successful were recruited by Coach Collins, and they were all from New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and New York. And uh, you know, he did an unbelievable job. And then, you know, certainly Coach Spurrier was involved sort of late late in the, uh, in the process.
0: Tell us a little bit about Coach Spurrier as a recruiter. We'll get to him as a coach in a minute. Uh, but what was it that made him unique as a recruiter and, and maybe made Coach Collins unique as well?
1: Yeah, I think Coach Collins, it was just um, the way that he connected with me. And I think the way he connected with all of us, he he definitely was a guy who um, you could tell he cared. It wasn't, I think a lot of guys have a specific playbook. They feel like they have to say certain things and do certain things and show you. And I think, at least for me, he just connected with me personally. And I think that was a a big, a big uh, winning uh, point for him. With Spurrier, candidly, it was, he came to our high school and uh, with with a reel of uh, a film, and brought me into uh, into a room. He showed me a game they played. I think it was homecoming versus Georgia Tech where Steve Sladen threw six touchdown passes. And they were doing, you know, double reverse passes and flea flickers and just, th- I think Sladen may have thrown it like 63 times that game. And for a guy who was running the freeze option, throwing it 10 times a game, you know, in high school, that just really excited me about what the, what the possibilities were. You know, I'll be honest, I didn't know much about his history of, as a player, Um, you know, my, my father was the one that was telling me that he was a Heisman trophy winner and was, you know, had had all these really, you know, um, know, unbelievable accolades as a player. But to me, what was interesting was his ability to, uh, to really design a brand new style of offense that not a lot of guys were running at the time. So
0: where did the, where do you think all the interest in you came from if you're only getting like 10 passes a game I can imagine you don't have a lot of like game film or highlights what what do you think it was that was causing people to say hey let's go check out Dave Brown
1: yeah I think I think size certainly was was the biggest thing being being in high school time six five certainly you know in that era you know size was a big thing for quarterbacks Um, I would would say arm strength you know we we did when we did throw it a lot of them were were deep passes so I I would roll out and throw a lot of, uh, you know, post patterns and things. And I think the ability to kind of put the ball up there high and connect with receivers deep was probably the the thing that attracted everyone the most, was just arm strength. What made you end up choosing Duke over the other
0: schools that you mentioned? And I'm glad you didn't go to Maryland, because I get a lot of stuff about Maryland that will get an E rating on the podcast, which we don't need. But what brought you to Duke?
1: Yeah, so um, – you know, again, I had great offers, Michigan, uh, uh, Iowa, Maryland, Boston College, et cetera. And um, I think for me, it was a couple of things. One, coming out of a system that I was played in, in high school, I'll be honest with you, I didn't know how good I was or how good I could be. And I felt like if I went to a Michigan or a Iowa where they would recruit the best players every single year, maybe I wouldn't have the greatest opportunity to play right away as I would at other schools. And I think along those same lines, you know, going to Duke was A decision. I know this is kind of their their motto down there. It's sort of a life decision. It's not a four year decision. And I felt like if I went there, you know, I play for a great coach. I play for an unbelievable system. But also, again, coming out of a system where I didn't really do a whole lot, you know, if if I didn't uh, reach the goals I I had for myself, I would get a great degree and graduate and have good job possibilities uh, outside of that. So that was really a big, a big weighing factor in, in why I chose Duke. Well, and
0: you mentioned this, Duke had actually produced some pretty good quarterbacks, certainly, and you were part of that. You had Ben Bennett, Steve Sladen, Anthony Dilwig, you, Spence Fisher, of course, came after. Did that, I mean, you mentioned the highlight reel of Sladen against Georgia Tech, but did that help you make the decision at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, Slayton was unbelievable. Ben Bennett, certainly his his days. I think also the the Tampa Bay Bandits, you know, some of the films that he would show of the Bandits with John Reeves, a quarterback, et cetera. All that factored into it. And, and really, you know, I, I didn't know of Anthony Dilweg. I didn't, you know, he didn't play until my freshman year, really. I mean, he had the one game, I think, at Clemson where he threw for 300 yards, where he subbed in for Slayden. But really, it was the Sladen show for many, many years uh, under Spurrier. And that was, you know, seeing what he did against Georgia Tech and then following him was was pretty incredible, the numbers he was putting up. Now, you guys were, you were
0: at Duke from 88 88- until I guess you finished the 91 season and then you went pro uh, what would have been the 92 year is that correct that's right yep walk us through the 98 season and what that was like because I feel like that is one that gets overlooked a lot by Duke fans in large part because of the 89 season with the ACC championship with Virginia but can you walk us through that year you guys were seven three and one you were pretty good
1: yeah, I mean, it was, uh, for me, it was a, a, a huge learning experience. I was, I was a freshman. I remember riding on the bus to go to our first game was at Northwestern and just sort of like, you know, nodding my head to myself, thinking like this is what big time college football is all about. I was so excited to be there. And then just seeing what Anthony Dillwig did on a, on a, on a really game by game basis, putting up 300 plus yards every game. Um, you know, it was really, really an amazing, um, he was an amazing teacher for me to be able to sit there and, and watch what he could do. Um, you know the system was so complex. I was the only real freshman quarterback that they had, so I was under the gun a lot with Spurrier. It was a, it was a you know learning process every single day, especially you know the first week. You're you're just that freshman practices only. So it was really Steve, Coach Spurrier, and I in a meeting room for several hours a day, grilling me on on all the different nuances of the offense. But being a part of that team and seeing how you know everyone connected, I think it was the time that. Maybe Duke didn't know they were that good and then maybe figured it out towards the end of the year That said, hey, we can play with anybody uh, that we go up against. And I think that was really the biggest thing. You know, Beating Tennessee down at Tennessee was a big shock to, I think, the whole NCAA in, in some respects. And, and I think the thing I always remember is, that, is the NC State game, and it's, um, it's pr- probably a, a pretty funny uh, pep talk, but it was a pregame talk that Spurrier mentioned. He goes, listen, guys, if we win this game, we're going to be in the bowl game. And if we hold this team to to under forty three points, we're going to win the game. There's not a whole lot of coaches out there that are that are you know telling your team they need to hold someone under forty three points to win the game. But he was he was spot on. We ended up tying forty three all, and they ended up taking NC State uh, to the Peach Bowl over us. So it was you know a pretty uh, pretty amazing prediction by him. But uh, but he was you know he, he knew exactly he sort of held the uh, uh, you know the pulse of the team at the time.
0: How did you guys feel about not getting to a bowl game? that season. I know you guys were, I think three and three in conference, but overall the record seven, three, and one was pretty darn good.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think a lot of it comes down to money. I'm sure at the time where, you know, the fan bases, you know, could, could a a smaller private school in the South deliver as many fans as a larger public institution in the South. I think that was probably the, the biggest uh, factor. You know, I think had we been at a a, a state school or a larger school with a bigger fan base at the time. I think we would have certainly been in, in our bowl game, but um, yeah, we were disappointed. I mean, I think, I think Spurrier obviously was, was super vocal after the game having, you know, feel like we, uh, we got the the wrong end of a few calls in that game, which I know he ended up being suspended for, but, uh, but if anything, it motivated us to, to, I mean, one, realize that we can play with anybody and two, I think that set up what was, you know, the, the really successful year the following year.
0: Let me ask you about that. You mentioned he got suspended for the following game. That's the game against North Carolina, which is famous for a number of reasons, but primarily he apparently sent coach Spurrier sent plays to coach Franks during the game through someone on a golf cart. Did you guys have any idea what was going on or know anything about that?
1: No, you know, at the time, no one knew anything about that. I, I, um, I've heard subsequent stories about that uh, later on in life, but, um, you know, listen, if I, if I was coach for I'd be doing the same thing. I mean, he was, he was the offensive coordinator. He was the head coach. He was the quarterback coach. He was everything on offense. And, um, listen, if you're playing your arch Ralph, if you're playing anyone and you're the head coach, you're going to find a way to, to get an edge. And, uh, listen, I think it was great with what he did.
0: Well, uh, What was, so the mood going into 1989 is positive. Did you have an idea as to who the starter was going to be? How did it come about? I know Billy Ray transferred in. You end up playing very, very well when you come in, but just walk us through kind of the mindset that you had about being the quarterback there and also the team's mindset going into the season.
1: Yeah. So after, um, after the 88 season uh, going into spring ball, you know, I, I, uh, I was assumed that I was going to compete for the starting job with a guy named uh, Kenny Hull. And then um, all of a sudden, you know, um, we, we get a transfer from Alabama, Billy Ray. And that was sort of a shock to all of our systems. Cause here's a guy who was at the time coming out of high school, a number two recruit behind Jeff George. He actually played a little bit uh, at Alabama and he was a, a, a phenomenal athlete. I mean, he was probably six, four, ran a four five forty could jump out of the gym and we we play pick up basketball games and see the athlete this guy was. So, you know, to me, it was just another, you know, person sort of standing in my way of of something that I wanted to really achieve. And I thought I made a lot of great strides in the fall of 88, really trying to understand the offense. So I was pretty confident heading into the spring and uh, I didn't have a great spring. Candidly, I, uh, the system overwhelmed me a bit. Um, You know, the, the system Spurrier has is so much, focused on the quarterback I, I often told people it was his play call was essentially a suggestion it was something that he anticipated but you as the quarterback had to adjust the play and get and get the team into the best situation possible at, at any given time and I just you know was having trouble trying to get to that point point. and um, it got so bad that then at the last spring game uh, practice uh, when it was over coach Spurrier pulled me aside you know congratulated everyone on a great spring and asked me to stay after practice. And he said, listen, I, I sort of had you factored in to be the starter. You know, you, you didn't win the job. Billy's going to be the starter next year. Um, but I promise you, you're going to play in the first game, but you just got to keep improving. And that was, you know, a really disappointing moment, maybe a seminal moment of my career to, to say, you really got to work harder. You're really going to study more. You're really going to lift more and do things um, a lot more in line to be competitive. And um, that started really a, a really hard summer for me of working out and getting my my face in the playbook. And, uh, and I think that's what set up maybe what, what happened uh, the following year.
0: Well, it certainly paid off when you got your opportunity. Uh,
1: nobody can question
0: that, but 89 started out a little slow. You guys are one and three and you have a game against Clemson, which was an ugly, wet, rainy turnover filled game. I think Clemson picked it off a couple of times and then got stripped and you guys picked it up. I mean, it was, not pretty. And then you played a little bit. Cuthbert comes in and he gets that great touchdown and you guys went seven straight. What was that Clemson game like and how much did it mean to you all?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it, backing up one week before that, we played Virginia and we got, we got beat up pretty badly. And that I got in in the fourth quarter of that game and actually threw three touchdown passes in the fourth quarter. And so, you know, as miserable as that game was for the team, in the back of my mind was that was probably the first time where I felt like, you know, I could, I could probably play, you know, I, I think I can, I think I can be successful in this system. And I think at that time too, coach Spurrier maybe began to get a lot more confident that I could play as well. So rolling into uh, rolling into Clemson, you know, I thought I might get a chance to play a little bit, but, but, you know, Billy was a starter and Billy was playing pretty well. I think at that time I got in one play it was right before the end of the half. I was asked to throw a Hail Mary and I rolled out and slipped and fell and uh, Coach Spurrier basically chased me into the locker room the entire way, screaming at me. But uh, but no, I think I think at that time that that's when our team found our identity. I think we, you know, the first three or four games we were trying to be maybe someone we weren't. And uh, in that game in in the mud, we figured out we were a you know risk it all blitz kind of defense. Uh, we were a, we were a heavy running game with with a guy like Cuthbert that could you know run over people. I think at times we could be a little bit too uh, cute on offense. And I think at that point, we realized we have the horses to run it. We can throw it, obviously. But the, the biggest thing to me was the defensive mindset. It was, you know, we got, we're got we going to isolate our corners. We've got a great safety, and we're just going to blitz every single down and see what happens. And I think the team embraced that, that kind of style, and that's what took us the rest of the year. We
0: also had a guy like Clarkson Hines to throw the ball to, which I'm sure helped. What was playing with him like?
1: It was great. I mean, he, he was, uh, you know, every single week, I'm sure the defense uh, that we played against had him highlighted and they had, you know, I'm sure brackets trying to figure out how to stop him. And I think that's what made coach Spurger so creative was, um, you know, we moved him around a lot. So he was a split end one, one week. He was a, you know, on the XC the side, he was a Z one year, one one week. And I think from, um, you know, a defensive point of view, it's really hard to sort of build a game plan where you don't know where this guy is. And, and, and in a way he was a ghost. You never really knew which side of the ball he was going to be on. And, uh, and I think that goes to Clarkston too, because he had to learn a lot. He probably learned more positions than anyone on the team because he had to play them all. He could line up in a tight end. Sometimes he could line up in the backfield sometimes. And, and, I, and I give him a lot of credit for just his ability to kind of create and, uh, and develop and adapt to what the game plan was every single week. And, just as a mentor, he, he really was a great teacher for the guys below him, the Walter Joneses of the team, the Mark Mayses, the, the Brad Reed loves guys like that, that, um, you know, kind of looked up to him and really set us up and set them up for, for their really successful careers at Duke as well.
0: Well, walk us through the rest of the season. You're on the hot streak. You guys are playing very, very well. And then you come in and play against Wake Forest. How did that come about?
1: Yeah, so, so Billy got hurt, I think the week before was, uh, was Georgia Tech. Uh, he hurt his shoulder. And, uh, and like I said, I, I after that Virginia game, I, I started to get a little bit of, of playing time here and there in games, you know, series here, series there. And then it was, you know, it was, it was my week to really go out and play. Billy, Billy tried to go with it, but, but couldn't make it. So uh, we were, we were playing at Wake Forest. Um, sort of the, the famous story of this is, you know, obviously Cuthbert was, was, you know, running, running wild. On everybody, I think he just came off a 200 yard game against Georgia tech. And um, you know, here comes this, this backup quarterback and everyone, in the world, we assume that this is going to be a smash mouth, you know, we're we're going to run Cuthbert every single play and see what happens. And so breakfast that morning before the Wake Forest game, Coach Sperger comes over and he asked me, you know, what, what, what I thought, you know, the first play should be. And obviously it's my first start. I'm going to defer to him. And uh, he had some, there were some Cheerios on the, on the table and he, and he basically lined up the field with Cheerios and said, I'm thinking about this. Why don't we, you know, fake a handoff to, uh, to Cuddy. And we'll put Clarkston on an option route. If it's a, if it's a zone cover two, we'll put them on a corner route. And if it's a man or a cover three, we're gonna put him on a go route and just throw it up there and see what happens. And so, sure, I mean, let's 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 give it a shot. And it just so happened it was it was the perfect play call. We we faked off the right tackle to uh to Cuddy and I threw a, a deep pass. I think it was a seventy six yard touchdown pass on the very first play of my first start, to Clarkson Hines. So. From that point on, the confidence was was there and uh, we ended up having a great day. I threw for four hundred and forty four yards and four touchdowns. I think Clarkson had three of those touchdowns and it was just you you couldn't have written a better script for a first start for a a kid who was basically a sophomore in college. And one of those
0: was for ninety seven yards, which I think is still right around the longest pass play in Duke scrimmage history. So, yeah, you played okay. You did all right. (laughs) A couple of things. Spurrier had for you to work on but you know that's uh that's pretty good
1: yeah it was it was amazing I think again my going back to my original point about you know Spurrier giving suggestions uh rather than you know making you run the play you know that 97 yarder was was supposed to be a running play but but when you go to line of scrimmage and there's nine guys standing there and you've got one-on-one coverage with Clarkston you know had I not checked to a to a deep pattern you know he would have he'd have yelled at me like you know, like, like everyone would have uh, been disappointed. I didn't execute that play. So you know, having the ability to really go out there and, and and drive the car, if you will, and have the keys to do that is a unbelievable experience as a quarterback. And, and one candidly that I missed, you know, playing professionally, I, you know, I never really had that kind of system in, in the pros that that Spurrier uh, let us run in college.
0: Well, and I understood from watching the interview you did with Rich Eisen that, Dan Reeves would not let you adjust the play at the line of scrimmage or make changes. Did that is it one? Do I have that right? And two, how did that affect you as a quarterback?
1: Yeah, I mean that that was frustrating. And again, coming out of a system, um, and we can touch on you know the the experience I had you know post post sprayer for the next two years of you know the ability that I had to call plays. But but yeah, I mean with the Giants with under Dan Reeves, it was um, he'd call play and that was the play, and there were. Times where I often joked if there were nine guys standing in in the A-gap and that's where the running play was supposed to go, you know, I had no ability to change that play. And and coming out of a system like Spurrier where you had so much freedom to go into that system was was pretty difficult. And, again, Dan, great person. You know, I know he just passed away, rest in peace. But he – a great coach. But I I felt like that was something that was a big challenge for me as a quarterback. You know, speaking of John Elway during that time, you know, he actually called me – when Dan took the, the, uh, the Giants job and he sort of warned me about that, he goes, you know, be, be ready for a little bit of frustration on play calling because he sticks to kind of what, what he has. And if the defense wins, you know, they win that one, but we're going to try and come back with him on with something different on offense for us, but that was certainly a frustration for me. Well, after
0: the Wake Forest game, you had another good game, which I'm going to do my best to remember to link to in the blog post. It's up on YouTube where you played your arch rival, North Carolina and you had a, you had a good day. I it was, it was all right. You threw for 479 yards. Uh and you guys beat them
1: 41 to nothing. What was that game like? Yeah, so actually the the the, the game after Wake was NC State and that was the one that really clinched the ACC for us effectively. It was it was the big game, big rival and we had a great game against them. The, the UNC game was the one that if you know, if we won, we'd be in we'd be co-co-champs we sort of knew we were going to win candidly. I mean, we were on a roll. They, they, they hadn't won a game all year. You know, we knew this was going to be, you know, I, I didn't think anyone realized it would be a 41, nothing kind of game, but at that time, our confidence was so high. You know, we, we were definitely, we knew we were going to play well, you know, the, the backstory really. So I, I threw for 479, um, didn't have a great, great game though. I mean, I know, I know you're, you know, people kind of roll their eyes. And I think if you asked Spurrier, he would, he would say the same thing. I missed a lot of throws in that game. And, um, if, if there's, there's a famous picture of us sort of standing up in front of the scoreboard. And if you look real closely, I'm kind of hidden in the back and I'm, I'm kind of have my head down. I'm not real happy because I just got chewed out by Spurrier in the locker room after that game, because he was so upset that all the throws I did miss in that game. So it is funny, you know, the, 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 the coach, you know, he, he was very demanding and he expected a lot and he was right. I mean, there were a lot of throws that I left out there. Um, but still, it was a great day, a great experience uh, for the team. And we, uh, you know, put 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 a good one on uh, on UNC.
0: How did the photo at the end of the game come about? What's the story behind that?
1: Yeah, so we were, um, you know, in the locker room uh, celebrating. You know, we we just we just beat them pretty badly, and uh, and we're, you know, clinched the, uh, the conference championship. And really, it was just a matter. Of, I think Coach Berger just said, "Hey, everyone, let's go back out in the field and take a team picture." And and it's interesting when you're. When you're that young, I didn't realize sort of the ramifications of it. I just thought, yeah, this 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 is a great idea. Let's go out there and and have this memory forever. Um, I didn't think about maybe the the after effects of of posting that uh, with uh, with the UNC fans, so seeing a 41 nothing on their own on their own home field in front of their own scoreboard. But you know, that's what makes rivalries great. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm in my my home office here. I have that picture, uh, you know, hanging in my wall, and it's uh, it's one of the I think one of the great. Uh, you know pictures in, in in Duke history. I read an article to get
0: ready for today that indicated that you had a fo- uh, uh, had a picture
1: of that framed in your work office as well. Is that true? I, yeah, I do. Yeah, I have uh, I have two copies. It's uh, it's that meaningful to me to have that in, in everywhere I go. I love it. I love it. That's fantastic. Now, after the Cuthbert
0: interview, I got a message from uh, one of my listeners who said that there was also a photo taken against Maryland one season uh under the scoreboard do you remember anything about that no i don't recall that uh, well i know you guys bounced back and beat them i think they'd beaten you in 88 and then you guys beat them 46-25 in 89 what do you remember anything about that
1: win uh that one you know, i don't recall that one i think neil o'donnell was the quarterback if i don't if i don't uh, i think he was at Maryland. Um, you know, candidly, the, the only game I really remember with Maryland was when I played you know I played against them my I think it was my senior year um, at Maryland and beat them pretty badly too. I think had some some good stats in that game, but I don't recall taking the picture there though.
0: All right. well we may just cut that part out then so <laughs> after the season ends, the regular season, you guys go bowling walk us through what the bowl game experience was like and the uncertainty about coach Spurrier's future. Cause we all know he ended up leaving to go to Florida after that season, but just tell us one, what it was like to win an ACC championship and go to a bowl game.
1: Yeah. I mean, winning ACC championship was, was amazing. I mean, just, just um, again, kind of going back to the hardship of the year before, you know, getting so close and, and, uh, and not, not, not really pushing through and then going to to 89, where we actually did uh, push through was huge. The Clemson game, I'm sure to everyone was the highlight. I mean, I think at the time they were ranked third in the country. So to stop them and then, you know, really rattle off all those wins was huge. You know, be- being, being, um, you know, asked to go to a bowl game, the All-American Bowl down in Birmingham was a thrill for all of us. I think, you know, one of the things I look back on when you, when you do sign to a, to a school, you know, you want to make sure it's perfect in every way. And, uh, you know, for us, if you think about it, you know, a lot of us went there because of Spurrier went there because of the education. And then, you know, we really wanted to play top flight football. I, I don't think anyone, any of us could have dreamed that, you know, we, we obviously graduated from a great school, played under a great coach, won a conference championship and played in a bowl game. I mean, that, 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 that really summarizes a, a full four years and a, and a, a dream for all of us. So you know going down to Birmingham was fun. You know, I think we probably had too much fun. Candidly, we, um, You know, Coach Spurrier was uh, was definitely you know on his way. He um, he sort of you know clued us in that week that he had he had accepted a job at Florida, and he really wanted to reward us uh, for the season that we had. So he didn't want to grind us down with too many practices. He wanted us to enjoy it, and uh, and we did that. And maybe too much, but but it was still a lot of fun. You know, we we uh, Texas Tech took the game a lot more uh, to heart than maybe we did. I think from a practice point of view, they were having double sessions down in down in Lubbock, Texas, and preparing for the game. And, uh, you know, we were overmatched. You know, they they ran it down our throats. We, uh, you know, Billy Ray and I uh, both alternated at quarterback. He started the game out in the second quarter and we went third and fourth. So I think it was, you know, the real season to us was was over, if you will. You know, winning the conference championship was everything. The bowl game maybe was uh, something that I think looking back in our lives now, we probably regret maybe didn't work as hard at. but uh, But it was still an unbelievable experience for us.
0: What was it like knowing that Spurrier was going to be gone? I mean, how did that affect you guys? Your mood, your mindset, your thoughts about the game, your focus?
1: Yeah, it, it definitely. We we definitely couldn't have been as focused as uh, as we as we should have been. There was a lot swirling. You know, every day there were ESPN cameras and reporters down there, which for us was sort of new. You know, we weren't we weren't under the the national eye as much as other schools out there. So, um, you know, I remember um, you know a, a couple of coaches would come by and we. would that they were friends with coach Spurner and we were thinking maybe that's the guy to replace him. And we were try, trying to figure out who the next guy would be. So there was a lot of indecision, but, um, but again, it was, it was a great week. It was a great experience. Just the game was, was uh, you know something that we regret, I think.
0: So your remaining seasons at Duke were 1990, 1991, coach Wilson takes over. Can you walk us through a little bit about what the changed coach Wilson was like? I mean, they're, players who are going through that now with coach Cutcliffe out and coach Elko in any advice you could give them and any commentary about the process you went through
1: yeah I think I think it's it's probably different because you know we we were big fans of coach Wilson you know he was uh sort of the assistant head coach she uh under coach Spurrier so when when Spurrier announced his departure you know we were all sort of hoping that that coach Wilson would get the job and a lot of us you Know Coach Butters or, or not Coach Butters, but uh, uh Tom Butters, who's the athletic director, asked us our opinion. You know, who who do you think should be the guy? Which I, I gave him a lot of credit for because he um, you know, there was a there was a captain's group that he um you know would speak to from time to time, and we were really effusive with praise for for Coach Wilson. So, you know, he came on, it was it was a lot of the same types of things that we would do under Coach Spurrier. We sort of kept that. That same uh, you know off season program and, and off season uh, and really the same kind of system as well. So we were excited about that. I think the the biggest difference was we had to find a new offensive coach. You know we, as I mentioned earlier, Spurrier was everything, and so he went out and hired a guy named Eddie Wilson, who was um, I think he was the offense coordinator at Cornell prior to it coming to Duke. And you know I, I know over time during that time there was a lot of scrutiny under Coach Eddie. And uh, you know when I look back on my experience of him. I give him a ton of credit for my development as, as a quarterback. He, um, he was put in a really tough position. He was asked to come in and learn the Steve Spurrier system and run that system, you know, at Duke. So he was almost the guy that was be that I was teaching and our other quarterbacks were teaching how to run the Spurrier system. And then he would adapt to that accordingly. And, and I think at times that's probably a really tough job for anyone to do first to replace Spurrier is one of the toughest jobs out there, but then to then, You know, assume the role of offensive coordinator, and 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 it not be your system uh, was was a pretty difficult task. And I give him a huge amount of credit. I've probably never you know spoken um, this much about him, but he he really entrusted me uh, with with uh, with a lot of what we were trying to do. We had two different systems um, of no-huddle offense. One was called Army. One was called Navy. The Navy system was where I could call the plays at the line of scrimmage. Basically, everything I wanted to do was there. I could substitute players in and out um, and call those plays. Then we had a system called Army, which was effectively a two-minute drill, and I could run a two-minute drill with calling my own plays. And that was, you know, for a 19-year-old kid or a 20-year-old kid to have that kind of ability to to call plays and and have the the trust of the coaching staff to do that was spectacular for me and my development as a a person as a quarterback as well.
0: Tell us a little bit about, and we've talked about it kind of, in some specific instances, but what coach Spurrier was like as a teacher, just as a guy to be around. I mean, the Duke fans obviously revere him and with good reason, but just tell us a little bit, of, little bit more about what he was like as a coach.
1: Yeah, he he was um, he, he was not a yeller, he was not a screamer, he was um, a great, he had a great ability to understand each person's. Uh, Personality and what drove that person, and he would tweak you accordingly. You know, he, um, you know, he finds a weakness inside you or something that really motivated you, and he would, and he would drill down on that. And that was something that I I think was probably his strongest attribute as a coach. Um, You know, as a as a player playing for him in the same position, you know, we would we would have competitions daily, and he'd be out there throwing passes with receivers, just just like the other quarterbacks were and i think one of the areas that he would tweak a lot of us was he would he would call plays or he would make throws and he completed them and sometimes we wouldn't and he would sort of drill us he's like hey i'm i'm you know i'm an old man you know and I, i'm able to do this why can't you do this as a 17 18 19 year old and that was a a big motivator for all of us like god i got to show this guy i can do it and he would he would have pop quizzes for us in quarterback rooms where he would uh, you know, drop certain plays and, and, uh, and, and we'd hand in almost like a, like a, like a class where we'd have any us on things. And it was a lot of, uh, a lot of mind games, but, but in a good way, it was making us better players. So we were so well-prepared, uh, in practice for when the games came and he, he would say this. And even Anthony Dillwig told me this as a freshman that when, you know, the practices are so hard that the games will be easy. And that really was what it was. It was, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of really hard days during the week for, for a lot of great days on Saturdays. You go
0: from the high of the 1989 season to then two seasons that are not as, not as good from a win loss perspective, four wins each season. What was, what was that like after being where you guys were in 89 to then the 90 and 91 seasons?
1: Yeah, obviously it was, it was very frustrating. We, um, you know, I don't think we could sneak up on anybody then. I think we were, um, we were now circled on other teams' uh, schedules. I think the way we won games, um, you know, we were blowing out a lot of teams. We were putting up a lot of big numbers on them in 89. So in 90, uh, you know, teams had a specific, a specific plan on how to stop us. And uh, I don't think we adapted uh, as well. I think certainly losing the players we lost, you know, losing a guy like Clarkson, I think the biggest thing was losing, you know, that, that offensive line was probably one of the best in, in Duke history, if not the best. And then, you know, bringing in a whole new offensive line to have them learn uh, effectively a, a, a somewhat different system was, I think, was what held us back. You know, certainly injuries, you know, Randy Cuthbert, you know, was, was banged up the next two years. So I think we, uh, when you look back on it, I think we were trying to keep the same identity as the team in 89 had but maybe we didn't have the same horses to do that. And uh, I think that was probably our undoing. And you lost a couple of close games in 91 that kept
0: you out, you know, from getting to a bowl again, you lost, you tied at South Carolina, you lost by a point to NC state, those go a little bit different. It's a, it's a different season. And you guys actually started out real well your last season before, as we've seen at other times at Duke, it just kind of didn't come together, but in 1990 at the end of the 1991 season going into 1992 you end up learning that the Giants have some interest in you can you tell us a little bit about how that came about
1: Yeah it's 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 something I I think on that Rich Eisen show I think it's the first time I actually you know talked about it publicly but it was uh, it was a strange time I had a fifth year to come back to uh, I was fully planning on coming back I was I went through spring practice and uh, I got a call from my father and he said, um, you know, we want to come down. Your mother and I want to talk to you about you know, what we've been doing. So, um, you know, we were, as mentioned, spring practice was, was wrapping up. And I guess during that offseason, uh, the New York Giants were having these conversations with my parents, basically saying that there's a, you know, there's a, a future draft coming out and they have uh, they're rating the different players. And I was rated very high uh, if, if I were to come out the following year. And the Giants, as I mentioned, still had a pretty good team, and they didn't think they would have a draft pick high enough to draft me um, as a a quarterback in the early rounds. So there was a thing at the time called the supplemental draft, and they said that if I went out, if I declared effectively a year early, so if I I could come out in the summer, uh, if I graduated on time, uh, that that they could end up drafting me in a thing called a supplemental draft. Now, they they couldn't tell me when they were doing it. It was uh, highly illegal, candidly, what they were doing. (laughs) but um, you know, for me, it was, it was an interesting opportunity. And I, you know, it was a, it was a long process where my parents had to convince me that this was real. There was a guy for the Giants named Tom Boyster, who was the head of uh, pro player personnel. The GM at the time was George Young. And my father was having these clandestine meetings at hotels, you know, in in Northern New Jersey saying, we need to set this up and how we're going to do it. And effectively it was something I, I couldn't, I couldn't pass up. And I, You know, looking back, I I hate the way it went down. I hate maybe the way that I left Duke um, a little bit in the lurch, you know, because I had gone through spring ball, but I I do think it was an opportunity where I had a chance to play for my hometown team, be a first-round draft pick in the NFL, um, and it was something that, you know, I I really couldn't pass up. So, you know, I announced I was leaving. I I told uh, Coach uh, Wilson at the time I was going to declare early. I I told uh, Tom Butters I was going to do it. Obviously, those were difficult conversations. I told the team I was going to do it, which was the most difficult conversation of all. And I was overwhelmed by the support that my teammates had for me to, to go and do that and kind of, you know, try to try to reach my goals and, and dreams. So that was uh, a little bit of a of an of a you know a big boost for me that the team was so supportive of me to go out there and try to do that. So I had to hold my own workouts. Again, this was this was all this is all under uh, under the radar. No one knew I was doing this. The Giants told me that they couldn't come at any of my workouts because they didn't want to tip their hand that they were going to try and you know make this draft pick. So I held private workouts down at Duke and um, one of the big workouts, I basically held a mini combine uh, on, on the football field there. There were, uh, you know, 28 teams showed up, uh, their scouts, their head coaches, and they put me through a mini combine or ran a 40-yard dash and did the uh, the shuttle run and threw to receivers. And, and uh, June Jones was then the the coach of the Falcons. And he, he led that workout for me and coming out at workout. There were, there were teams who were interested and um, I had to hold private workouts. So one of the workouts was Sam Weish. He flew to to my hometown and worked me out. Uh, Bill Belichick was the coach of the uh, Cleveland Browns. Uh, He worked me out. And then um, also the Kansas City Chiefs are working me out. All the while the team that I wanted to go play for the team that started this whole thing, New York Giants never showed up once. Didn't speak to him once, and it was a really nervous time for me. That that you know, hopefully this is all going to pan out. And in the end, you know, I, I hired an agent, uh, sort of tipped him off on what was uh, what was going to happen. Probably the easiest job an agent ever had to do was when a player comes to him and tells him he knows what's going to happen. Here's here's the team that's going to draft me in the first round. Um, but um, you know, I, I guess I had such successful workouts with these coaches that other teams were now popping up and saying they were interested in, and we're going to take me in the first round. So one of those teams happened to be the Cleveland Browns. So I think they had the 13th pick of that draft in the summer and Bill Belichick called and said, we want to take you in the first round. And to me, this was before Bill Belichick was obviously the, the guy he is now. And um, I called my agent and said, listen, this is, this is not a team I want to play for. The giants have the very next pick. Is there a way we can massage this where we can tell them, you know, kindly, you know, no thanks. And let's, let's go with the giants. So he, did what agents do, you know, threw out a a crazy number that I'd want to sign for, which uh, spooked them. And the giants had the next pick and the giants took me and sort of the rest is history. So it was a really strange time. I was drafted in, I think it was around July 13th of the summer uh, reported uh, soon thereafter to the giants. And um, it was a, you know, a really stressful, crazy uh, senior year for me in college.
0: Well, uh, before we get into all that and your NFL career, there were two other things I wanted to cover with you. One, you did leave the school in good hands from a quarterback perspective with Spence Fisher coming on and playing, uh, who of course was on the team that went to the bowl game in 94. But also I, I didn't ask this, what, what was coach Wilson like as a head coach and maybe how was he a little different from coach Spurrier?
1: Yeah, coach Wilson was, was, uh, you know, a very, uh, you know, a great leader. He was uh different in the sense that he was a little bit more hands-off. He allowed the assistant coaches to kind of coach their positions where, as I mentioned before, you know, coach Spurrier was offense coordinator, quarterback coach, wide receiver coach. I mean, he was sort of everything. Um, So in that regard that he was, he was different. I think he certainly was well-organized, you know, certainly had a lot of respect for the team. Um, But again, I think he was, um, you know, he wasn't Spurrier. And I think at the time the success we had at that university and the success we had, under coach Spurrier, it was a, it was a tough job. You know, it was a hard job to, to be successful. And I think that was maybe one of the reasons that we, we weren't as successful Because I think at times he tried to be a little bit like coach Spurrier, but you know, no, one's like coach Spurrier. And, um, and I think that was uh, you know, I think, I think that, and maybe just the talent level, we didn't have the, the senior laden offensive line and the senior laden, you know, leaders that we had on 89, we had to become those, those players at a much earlier age and grew up a lot lot more quickly. And and, I don't think we were as deep as as other teams uh, in 89 as well.
0: Well, tell us about your pro career first with the Giants. You were there for what, five seasons? Is that right?
1: I was there for six, actually, yeah.
0: Six seasons. Tell us what your time in New York was like.
1: It was, I mean, again, it was a dream come true being being drafted uh, in the first round with them, you know, working under Phil Simms, uh, my rookie year was amazing. You know, we had a guy named Ray Handley who was the coach that, that didn't end well. He was fired after my rookie year. Um, and then Dan Reeves was brought in and, uh, and Phil Sims was brought back another year. I was his backup that year. Jeff Hosteller was, had moved on to go to the Raiders. So it was really, you know, I, I had a great opportunity to learn from a guy who was in his 15th year um, and, we, and we were very good friends. We, we trained together. We played golf together. He actually, you know, taught me how to play golf. That was uh, my, my first introduction to the game. And, uh, and, and really had a great workout uh, routine together. And then uh, that that's, uh, spring after his 15th year, it was my going to be my third year, uh, the Giants moved on from Phil and I was named uh, effectively the starter uh, going into my third year. And that was that was amazing thrill for me. And I, I had to earn the job. There was another guy named Ken Graham who was my year as well. We competed for the job, um, but I had a really good uh, spring and had a really good uh, training camp. And I was named a starter after the third preseason game. And it was an amazing start. I mean, we started at home against the Eagles uh, over on, on Labor Day weekend. We won that game. Next game, we played the uh, the Cardinals in Arizona with, uh, with Buddy Ryan, was the head coach. We won there. Uh, the third game of the year, we played uh, the Redskins. We beat them. So I'm 3-0 as a starter, all division teams. And uh, we, then we went, went to a bye week. And I was on top of the world. Candidly, it was, you know, who could have asked for a better start than 3 0 or in first place? And, um, and then coming out of the bye week, you know, reality sort of hit. We, we, we played some some teams, didn't play as well. I didn't play as well. Um, you know, teams, I'm sure, figured out a little bit of the things maybe I didn't do as well. And they, they game planned us and uh, we started losing. And we lost, um, you know, if you can believe it, we lost seven games in a row. I lost six of those in a row. So we went 3 0. To zero six, I was uh, I was benched for Kent Graham for the for the for the next week. We lost that game, and um, and Kent didn't play uh, particularly well. And then it was decided let's let's go back and and put me back in as a starter. So we were three and seven, and we played the Redskins and had a good game against the Redskins and beat them. And really, maybe the 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 confidence that I lacked or was lacking towards the end of that losing streak, I regained pretty much overnight against the Redskins. Had a really good game there. Played the Eagles again, beat them, and we actually came all the way back to being. We were, we were, I think at the time seven. Don't uh, worry, we? we were we were eight and seven, and we had one more game to go, and it was against the Cowboys at home. And uh, had you know, if we beat the Cowboys, and the Green Bay Packers lose, we're in the playoffs. So it's an amazing swing where we're going three and zero to zero and seven to potentially being six and zero, and we do actually go out and beat the Cowboys. Uh, on the last on, on the last game of the year. So we're nine and seven, my my first year starting. I'm nine and six as a starter. And 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 Brett Favre on the last play of the game scrambles against the Falcons with no time left to score a touchdown. And they go in the playoffs and we don't. It's it was an incredible play by him. Maybe not the smartest play, because if he gets tackled with no timeouts, the game's over. Um, but he does do it in, in true Brett Favre fashion. So my rookie year or my, my first year starting I'm nine and seven um and the you know feeling really good about the prospects of where we're gonna go and and kind of a little bit like what happened to Duke you know we had a, a, a very um experienced team and they became uh expendable in the Giants' eyes the team uh had a lot of veterans and there was this kind of transformation about to take place and I was part of that transformation and so they let go a lot of the a lot of the veterans and, and brought in a lot of a lot of more inexperienced younger guys who all were like me, all really wanted to play hard and wanted to win. And we just had some difficult years after that. And I probably didn't play as well. And uh, and we were, I think we were five and 11, six and 10. And Dan Reeves was was fired after that. And we brought in a guy named Jim Fossil, who actually was my quarterback coach my rookie year and uh, and had a great experience at the gym. Um, we were, I think, five and two when I was uh, still in there. And then I got hurt and missed that arena or that year. I tore my uh, my pec on my throwing arm, and uh, and after that season, I was expendable. Then, so I was released and uh, went off to Arizona, and uh, I went backed up Jake Plummer there for four years. What was your time in Arizona like? It was great. I mean, I love I love I the area. Um, I, I often use this analogy. I don't know if if people are Bull Durham fans, but uh, but Jake Plummer was a little bit like New pollution and I was a little bit like Crash Davis. I was brought in there to sort of Teach Jake how to play quarterback. Jake had an unbelievable college career at Arizona State. He had amazing talent. He could throw the ball all, all over the field. He could move, um, but you know, at times, could do some things that we were head scratching uh, plays. And, and my job, because I was uh, you know a veteran guy, I started maybe seventy or so games, you know, in the NFC East at the time. The Cardinals were still in the NFC East, and I was brought in to sort of you know be his mentor, teach him you know, how to train, the things I learned from Phil Simms, you know, the things I learned, the highs and lows of being the Giants quarterback, I would sort of impart that upon him. And he and I had a great relationship. And, um, you yeah, know, I played, I played some there. I, I probably started maybe 10 or 12 games when I was there, uh, you know, w- when he experienced some injuries and had some success out there as well. But my main reason for being out there was to teach him how to play and teach him the ways of the NFL and, uh, and had a great experience doing that out there.
0: Well, you finish up your career and then you told us about what you did after that I'm curious though going from college and you mentioned not being able to change plays at the line of scrimmage was difficult what's the biggest adaptation from being a college quarterback to being a starting NFL quarterback
1: yeah I mean the easy thing to say I think it's just the game so much quicker I think um I think the quickness is biggest thing, but I think also it's, it's the schemes. I mean, every week in and week out, you're going to see something different. And when I, when I began starting the league with the, the, the evolution of the zone blitz was, was starting. And that was a huge uh, problem for, for young quarterbacks because, you know, at Duke under Spurrier, when you would see certain blitzes coming, basically they were going to play man coverage behind it and you could exploit that. And, and that's why guys like Clarkson and others, we were throwing so many deep patterns, so many quarter, corner route patterns to these guys because we knew they were going to play a man coverage. When you go to the NFL uh, early, the early days when zone blitz started, they would they would show that same look and they would drop off and they would plant people in different positions where you didn't think they'd be. And that the advent of the zone blitz was um, a humiliating experience for not only. New quarterbacks, but but veteran quarterbacks as well. And and now that's obviously been woven into the into the game in college. And, and there are ways to defeat it now. But man, early on as a starting quarterback in the NFL, that was a head scratcher for me and others. Um, and, and caused a lot of pain for quarterbacks.
0: Well, what uh do you have any thoughts on the current state of the program? We got a new coach in. I'm, I'm sure you keep up with the Blue Devils. Any any thoughts on what we can expect in the next couple of years?
1: Yeah, listen. I mean, I think um, you know. Obviously, uh, Coach Cutchcliffe did a great job. I, I often tell people, you know, if he didn't win another game, the things he did for the program and, and kind of getting them into the into competitive situations from a, from a you know from the stadium being redone to the indoor facilities to the to the locker room, kind of the the fundraising behind that and the and the motion that he created. To get them to the point they need to be i think was a, was a huge thing i think it's it was probably time and i'm, I'm happy to see that that the. it sounds like coach elko is, is is the right man for the job i don't know much about him candidly but um but i'm excited i think i think the the program um you know something i follow it's it's amazing i, I don't think maybe the fans realize how involved ex-players are you know from from our own communications you know i i we there's a group. There's a text chain that we, I speak to sort of every week. There's guys. That it's great that they're on TV so much because a lot of the ex players will, will watch it. I don't think, you know, candidly, maybe the '89 team and the teams that, that uh, I played for are maybe as involved in the university as we once were. I think, um, you know, maybe we're a little bit too old, and I think Coach Cliff's era maybe has um, has her own you know group of people. But I but know that sort of our group is very close still and, and roots hard for, for, for Duke and, uh, you know, thinks the best for them and, and wants the best for them as well.
0: You mentioned the indoor facilities and, and Cuthbert mentioned this a little bit when he was on, but tell us what the facilities were like that you guys had when you were playing there compared to what they have today.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's the, so the, the, the current, I guess it's the lacrosse locker room and the, and the soccer locker room. That was our locker room. That was the football locker room. And that was, State of the art. I mean, candidly, that was a recruiting tool uh, for guys like me to go there because they had the room was able to split into four different walls. Like walls that come out and split the place into four different corners. And to me, that was you know, wow, that's amazing. We have this this amazing facility. Um, you know, our indoor facility was effectively car gym when it rained. Coach Spurrier, as a as a quarterback, didn't like being out in the rain. You know, no quarterback likes throwing the rain. So we had to practices in car gym. So. You know, to look at what they've done, you know, the Yo Center and the indoor facility and, and, the, and the stadium being redone, it's it's night and day. And, and, and they needed to do it. Candidly. To be competitive, they needed to do it and they need to do more. And it's a, it's an arms race out there. But I'm happy that the uh, the university has supported it so well. And I know Coach Elko and others will continue to, to look for upgrades and, and ways they can continue to kind of, uh, you know, uh, make, make the, the program more competitive. One thing that I like to give everybody a
0: chance to talk about is what they are most proud of about their time at Duke, indoor. I mean, excuse me, uh, on the field, off the field, anything.
1: Uh, looking back on your time at Duke, what are you most proud of? I mean, it may sound corny, but it's it's the guys that I played with, um, the friends that I made. You know that that '89 team. It's it's pretty amazing when we have these five year reunions the attendance is pretty much a hundred percent. Um, like I said, there's text chains out there, there's phone calls. It's the relationships that, um, that we, that we accomplish something that not many teams in Duke history has ever done. You know, we, we won a conference championship. Um, and we sort of did it, um, you know, our way it was, uh, it was aggressive style. So I think that's first and foremost, the biggest thing, you know, being associated, having a degree from Duke, you know, doing all those types of things, you know, being outside of uh of the football realm and being in the workplace you know that that Duke degree carries a lot of weight and uh you know being able to sort of hitch my wagon and say I was part of the university and part of the program is is still a big thrill for me
0: how how do you think that the Duke brand has helped you throughout your career obviously we've talked about it in football but maybe in your business career
1: yeah listen people I mean they automatically think you're a really smart guy when you have a Duke degree whether that's the case or not you know that's they 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 can't deny the fact that you have a Duke degree, so that's that's one thing, and it's and it's uh, it's a hard place to get into. I mean, it's 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 elite company to be uh, a student there, to I be mean, a student athlete is is even a higher uh, threshold. So to me, it's um, it's been everything in my career uh, to, to be able to say that I um, you know graduated from there. There's a network uh, in the business side that I deal with that are all Duke guys. So hopefully we all try to take care of each other if we can um, from a business point of view. So it's uh, to me, it's everything.
0: Well, is is there anything else that you'd like to say? You've been kind enough taking about an hour out of your Saturday morning here. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? I I give people an open mic if there's anything they'd like to discuss. Uh, The the microphone is yours.
1: Yeah, no, it's funny. Early on, when I was talking about my kids, you mentioned, uh, and and you you mentioned a lot about Maryland. Um, You know, I do have a little Maryland uh, story I can tell you. So I told you I have two kids, I have three kids, two daughters, who are both in college. My son is a, is a junior in high school. And he actually committed to Maryland for lacrosse. So (laughs) he uh, he's, we're all very excited. So we're, uh, we're going to be Terp fans. And uh, you know, I know, I know this is a Duke podcast, but, uh, but for, for lacrosse, we're uh, we're all in on Maryland. What position does he play? My son plays lacrosse. They didn't have it where I grew
0: up in South Carolina. And so uh, it's kind of an alien sport to me.
1: Yeah, no, he, he, uh, he plays defense. Uh, he's a big kid. He uh, he's six, four about 205 pounds. He was a pretty heavily recruited guy. Uh, and, uh, and we're really thrilled that he's uh, he's going to Maryland. The coaches at Maryland were amazing um, and, uh, and, and look forward to watching him there in, in a couple of years.
0: Well, good. I'll, uh, we'll root for him. I don't know if I'm going to root for the Terrapins.
1: Just, no, that's we'll that, root that, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, we hope, he, we hope he does well and, uh, uh, and that uh, he has a great time there. I, I do want to ask you this since you brought this up. Again, not growing up a lot around lacrosse, I'm sure you guys probably had it where you were growing up. It's taken me a while to get used to the amount of head contact that there is in that sport. I mean, you played in the NFC East when it was still the NFC East. Uh, does that ever give you pause? I mean, it's hard for you ever to watch that.
1: No, I love it. That's uh candidly. That's, that's his game too. It's uh, he's a physical player. Um, you know, my son also plays football. He's, he's a quarterback for our high school team, but, but I think, you know, I, I am all about, um, I love the aggression in the sport and I, and I love Obviously, um, you know, not many quarterbacks admit to liking the aggression, but a lot of us, you know, when the games are over and our careers are over, we kind of miss that feeling of Monday morning waking up and kind of feeling your neck being be a little bit sore and your shoulders sore. So I'm, I'm all for it. Certainly the concussions are, are, are a problem. I mean, I, I certainly had my share and, uh, and, I, and I don't want to ever, you know, uh, belittle the, uh, the importance of that. But, you know, if, if you can play a physical style and, and still you know, keep your head out of the game, uh, from a contact point of view, I am all for it. And, um, I think he is too.
0: Yeah. That, so I, the physical side of it doesn't bother me. It's just, sometimes I feel like they don't do enough to police the head contact, which worries me. Cause I'm, I'm in the personal injury field of litigation and I see a lot of people when, you know, rear enders, they get their neck snapped back and their head goes back and forward and it kind of bothers them. So it's just always something that worries me. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on ways to kind of police the neck and up contact to keep it safe where you can still body people and, and play people, but still protect the head from any damage.
1: Yeah. I think a couple of things. I like think one they, they they mandated a new helmet this year. So everyone has to have a new helmet, which, um, has better technology, which is a, a great thing. I think too, I mean, it, it's really up to the way you're taught how to play. I mean, I think, um, you know, thankfully up in the Northeast, this is sort of the the hotbed of, of lacrosse. And there's a lot of great uh, coaches up here who actually played in college. And um, so I think having the ability to learn from, if you will, these, you know, the best, you know, my, my, my ability to learn from Steve Spurrier in football versus my son's ability to learn from guys who played in college who are like him in the college realm, I think have helped him develop and, let, and help players develop. But you know, it really is going to come to officiating. You know, how, how strictly do the officials call it? I think kids are going to want to try and do what they can to get away with it. But as long as everyone's on board with uh, systematic rules and the way the game should be played, you know, I don't think it, sh- it should be a problem. Now, there's always a one-off here and there, but I think with the technology of the helmet, the way the games are officiated, and more importantly, the way the game is taught, I think should help mitigate a lot of that.
0: Well, excellent. Well, Dave, uh, thanks a lot for taking your time out of a Saturday. This was a great talk. Glad to have you on. Glad to have another player from the 1989 ACC championship team on to talk about that era of Duke football. It's a great era that I don't think we should ever forget about. It was a lot of fun, and and my dad still talks uh, in almost uh, complete uh, reverence about you guys. Spurrier was kind of a deity in our house uh, when I was a kid, so – I know he's going to very much like this interview. And for those of you who are out there listening, we have a few more interviews that are locked in for season two. I've got to start making phone calls for later on in the spring and sending emails and getting people on board. If you are a former player, uh, family member of a player, or a former coach, former administrator, you can shoot me an email, bullcitycoordinators at gmail.com. My messages on Twitter are open. Send me a message. We'll set something up. Go to our website, bullcitycoordinators.com, and we look forward to many more great episodes in season two. Go Duke.